Thank you, worship team, for leading us in song and drawing our hearts to consider the truth that God's love is eternal, that it never fades even when the things in this life do. And that is a truth we're going to consider here much this morning. My name is Brad Lagos, and I am the pastor of small groups here at Bethel, and it's my privilege to be able to open God's word with you all here today. And our text is the book of Ecclesiastes. And so let's get our Bibles out and turn to that now. Ecclesiastes is found pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. If you find Psalms and Proverbs, go right. Ecclesiastes is the book that immediately follows Proverbs. It's a small book, probably just a few pages. Find Psalms and Proverbs, keep flipping over and you'll hit it. And we're going to be in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes today. Primarily verses 7 through 10. And what I'd like to do is I want to read that text, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig in. So, let's read God's word, starting in verse 7 of chapter 11. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. That's our text. Let's pray. Our Father, we need to hear from you now. We confess that as we go about our days, our weeks, so often our minds are filled with the garbage of this world. We want to tune all that out now. So we ask that you would speak to us now. And God, I would particularly ask that you would use my feeble words in some way to communicate truth from your powerful word. Through our time today, I ask that you would help us to see the true fleeting nature of this world, but yet how to find joy in it and happiness in it by living according to wisdom. So God, meet meet with us now. Guide us in truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've spent much time in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's a very unique book in many ways. And let me give you some brief introductory comments about Ecclesiastes. It is a unique genre in Scripture. Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, but it is a special kind of wisdom literature. It is a philosophical discourse. It really contains all sorts of philosophical musings about the nature of life and our reality. In many ways, it's kind of like a philosophy speech. It's a unique genre. also has a mysterious author. Traditionally, Ecclesiastes has been attributed to Solomon. And there are many good textual indications why this may be true. But there are other many good textual indications that indicate that this book was written many centuries after Solomon's reign. For example, the author refers to himself as, as following a long lineage of kings in Jerusalem. And Solomon was only the third king. The author also identifies himself by name. He gives himself the name Koheleth. Not Solomon. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, this book is not called Ecclesiastes. It is called Koheleth. And so there are many reasons 
to believe, good reasons to believe that it was written by Solomon. There are many good reasons to believe it was not and by someone else. And for the sake of our time here this morning, we're just going to say we don't know. We don't know for certain who wrote this book. And while we don't know the author's identity with certainty, we do know a lot about him. We know he was a Jewish ruler in Jerusalem, presumably a king. We know that he was a very wise man and an important teacher of his day. He also was very wealthy. Many times throughout Ecclesiastes, he describes his vast wealth and his many accomplishments. But despite these, all these descriptions of his life, we still can't figure out with certainty who it is. The book has a mysterious author. It's also written from a unique, unique point of view. The author's writing at the very end of his life. He is clearly in his last days. And this book is his epitaph. Of sorts. It is his last message to his people. He is, he is trying to leave a legacy. And this book is his plea to do so. If you've been paying attention. We talk a lot about legacies in the news these days. When the last president left office just a few months ago. For weeks there was constant chatter about. What would this guy's legacy be? How would history judge him? How would we remember him? And now with our new president, having served just his first hundred days in office, again, there's much speculation about what kind of impact is this guy going to have? What kind of legacy is his administration going to leave upon the American people? And prominent leaders often write memoirs in an attempt to define their legacy. And these autobiographies try to bring perspective to their life and to their accomplishments. And Ecclesiastes is this author's end-of-life memoir. But it's a unique one. Most memoirs, they try to look back on a life with positive things, with positive reflections, and they celebrate accomplishments and triumphs. Not so this memoir. Ecclesiastes is the most cynical book in the entire Bible. Instead of celebrating the author's life, it disparages it. Instead of relishing in the author's accomplishments, it points out the futility of them. Instead of ending on a note of happiness and optimism, there is a pervasive sadness and pessimism throughout the book. Even bitterness and mockery about life is found throughout its pages. The author here is clearly jaded about life. He is weary and he is sad in his final days. And in this emotional state, he produces this heavy book. And to understand it truly, we first have to identify its primary theme. 38 times throughout Ecclesiastes, the author describes life and the things in it with the Hebrew word hebel. Hebel is a notoriously difficult word to translate. Modern translations attempt to render it with words like vanity or futility or transience or meaninglessness. The words often used to point out actions that are worthless, things that bring no profit, things that are ultimately futile. And Hebel also carries a helpful word picture. It is one of a vapor or a breath or a shadow. It's a picture of something that's here one moment and then immediately gone the next. It's here. You can see it. You can basically almost lay hold of it. But then it's gone. That's a bell. Like your breath on a cold winter's day. You breathe out. You exhale the condensation. You can see it. You can almost grab it and lay hold of it. But when you go to grab it, what happens? 
towards God. Or on a warm sunny day, when the sun suddenly jumps behind a cloud and a shadow comes over you, but only for a moment, because the cloud quickly moves and the shadow disappears. So you're for a moment, then gone. The Bible uses this word when reflecting on the shortness and the fleeting nature of life. Job says in chapter 7, verse 16, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a hebel, a breath. Psalm 144, verse 4, man is like a hebel, a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And Ecclesiastes acknowledges this at the very beginning of the book. This is how he starts. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Four times he uses Hebel. All is vanity. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, people live, they're here, and then they die, and then more people come, and they live, and they die. The earth stays, people come and go. Then he continues, this is, there is of no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, people come, people go, but no one remembers what they do. Nothing lasts. Nothing is fully and truly remembered here on this earth. It's here, then it's gone. His point throughout all of Ecclesiastes is that earthly things are fleeting and ultimately futile. Fleeting. Futile. And Ecclesiastes uses this word, chabel, over and over again to describe the very nature of our lives, our work, our accomplishments, our very existence. They are but a breath. Here for a moment and gone. Your life. Here for a moment and gone. The days themselves today. Here for a moment and gone. Your investment portfolio. Here for a moment, then gone. Your home value, your job, your health, your loved ones. Here for a moment, then gone. It's like a bird I saw this morning walking into church. It was on the ground, fluttering around, apparently had a broken wing. It's like a poor bird. Poor bird. What, what am I going to do about this? Then I looked around and I saw a hawk. I thought, problem solved. <laughs> Here for a moment, then gone. That's life. That's the very nature of our existence, isn't it? Here for a moment, then gone. Therefore, Ecclesiastes describes so much of what is done on this earth as a striving after the wind. He says, chapter 1, verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Who here can get hold of the wind? Who here can grab onto your breath? It's futile to chase after the wind. It is of no profit to try to grab hold of your breath because the moment you think that you've got it, that you've truly laid hold of it, it's gone. So it is with all the tangible, physical, material accomplishments in this life. The author summarizes every accomplishment in his life in this way. Chapter 2. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and as slaves who were in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. More than any who were before me in Jerusalem. 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got sinners, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil, all this stuff. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The author is at the very end of his life. Death is very near for him. And though he had done much vast accomplishment, more than anyone else before him, he realizes now that he cannot take any of it with him. Therefore, his accomplishments, they ultimately have no more enduring value for him. They are worthless. They are without profit. They are hebel. Not his home or his treasures. Not his job accomplishments or any of his material things. Not his gardens or his automobiles. As 401k or his sporting records or his home projects. These things, while they receive so much of his attention in his life, are ultimately all a vapor. And as he considers this truth, this is his conclusion. Chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about. And gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Author's point is this. The things in life that I worked so hard for, I can't take them with me. I wasted my time. Wasted my life. Sometimes I feel this way when I think about elementary school, learning all about the card catalog system and microfiche. Where's that now? We got computers and the internet. It's gone. The earthly things in this life are fleeting and futile. And at the end of the day, they are like a breath. They are here for a moment, and but soon they will all be gone. Therefore, the pursuit of them is ultimately futile. I told you, this is a heavy book. But its message is one that I think has tremendous relevance for us today. Just consider the prominent news items that are out there. We've learned our financial stability is fleeting. This modern recession that we're in has powerfully reminded us of the fleeting nature of wealth. Many of us have seen so much of our hard-earned accomplishments vaporize. Into thin air. Here and gone. Our vocational security is fleeting. Every week we get reports of those within our congregation who are losing their jobs. Even the most tenured employees, the seemingly most essential positions are being cut. Here and gone. Our health is fleeting. Very recent days, this week, our airways have been dominated by coverage of the swine flu. And this scary outbreak has 
powerfully reminded us that death could come and snatch us away at any moment for seeming ridiculous and random reasons. We are far less safe than we seem. We are far more fragile than we feel. Here, God. These earthly things, they are but a vapor. Here for a moment, and then gone. And as the author reflects on this, now you can see the reason for his cynicism. He had much to lose, and he will lose it. So do we. So will we. So what should be our response to this truth? Ecclesiastes provides us with one. It's an application, though, that is astonishing. Surprising. In so many ways. And for that, we finally return now to our text today. Chapter 11, verse 7. The author begins by saying that life is good and that it has much opportunity for enjoyment. He says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Light here is a metaphor for all that is good in life. In contrast to that, Ecclesiastes, darkness is used to describe all the difficult things, all the hard things, evil things, depressing things in life. And so here, light represents all the good earthly things. And in describing this nature of this earthly life, the author appeals to the senses, particularly the senses of taste and of sight. That life is sweet to the taste and that it is pleasant to the eyes. And his point with this language is that the goodness in life is meant to be experienced. Just as good food is meant to be enjoyed by tasting it and savoring it. And as a beautiful sunset is meant to be a feast for the eyes. So too is life meant to be experienced. But not with the cynical, pessimistic attitude present throughout so much of this book. It is to be savored with enthusiasm and with delight. Earthly things, they are fleeting and futile. So therefore, his conclusion, his application is pursue pleasure while you can. Pursue happiness while you can. Look what he continues to say. Chapter 11, verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Commands to rejoice, commands to be happy in the things of this earth, commands to have genuine joy throughout our life. What an incredible surprise this is. Given the incredibly sobering and negative tone of this book, you would expect the author to say, you know, well, since life is ultimately futile, just give up. You know, at the very least, just accept it and be sad about it. That's not what he says. That is not what he says. Instead, he gives exhortations to rejoice and to be happy in life. And he's not talking about joy like sometimes we talk about it. Like, I'm sad because my friend just died. But I'm joyful because I know they're in heaven, but I'm still sad. Or I'm sad because I lost my job, but I'm Joyful, because I know God's going to take care of me, but I'm still sad. It's not the type of joy, happiness he's talking about here. It's rejoicing is much more similar to being happy and delighting in and enjoying our circumstances. And it's interesting to know that these are our commands. He's not like, hey, be happy when you can. 
rejoice when he can somehow muster it. He says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. And that is an exhortive let. It's the kind of let you say when you, when your kids are playing and they need to put their toys away and get in the car and you say, let's go. Let's move it. Let's rejoice. Verse nine, rejoice. O young man in your youth. We are instructed to be joyful in life. That as we live through our years, we enjoy and rejoice in them to the utmost. Not only that, but we are to pursue this joy to the best of our ability. It says in verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Basically, if there is a desire in your heart to do something that will bring you happiness... Do it. If you see something with your eyes that will bring you pleasure, go for it. Make the most of your days. Enjoy them. Strive to suck all the marrow out of life. Savor all the good things that this life has to offer. Be like a dog. Chewing on a bone. Don't just take a quick pass at it. Grab a little morsel, then set aside. Be like a dog. Get it. Get hold of it. Chew on it. Gnaw on it. Milk that thing for all it's worth. Get every ounce of pleasure out of life that you can. And oh, there are many wonderful good things in life to enjoy, aren't there? So that if you go out to a nice restaurant that is featuring a thick, succulent T-bone steak. With caramelized onions and a balsamic glaze. Oven roasted potatoes, green beans, almadine, and a free dessert. Order it. Eat it. Or if you have a free afternoon to enjoy one of your hobbies or participate in some sporting activity, go for it. Or if you have the opportunity to take a vacation and go someplace where the weather is actually pleasant, take it. Or if the night is winding down and the kids are in bed and you look over at your spouse and the love feelings start to flow. The writer of Ecclesiastes would say, just do it. And the men said, amen. (laughs) Approach life like a dog with a bone. Get everything joyful out of it that you possibly can. Don't stop until you have devoured all of its pleasures because it will soon be gone. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. You're thinking, this is unlike any message I've ever heard in church before. (laughs) And I don't want my teenage kids to be listening to this. First, you tell me that life is fleeting and futile, and you get me all bummed out and depressed. And now you tell me I have to live life for joy. That I ought to pursue pleasure and be overflowing with happiness. I'm confused. And I'm concerned. This sounds dangerous. And it has countered the self-denial and selflessness that the Bible calls us to. But that's what Ecclesiastes is telling us to do. Look what else he says. Chapter 2, 24. There is nothing better than for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. Chapter 9, verse 7, go and eat your bread, enjoy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love. 
all the days of your vain life, he has given you under the sun. And all these verses, Ecclesiastes is saying to pursue pleasure while you can. Suck all the morrow out of life. Make the most of your good days while the days are still good. Because life is fleeting. And it is futile. So much of it. And that's the point that the author makes again in verse 8 when he says, Remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. When he says that, he is referring to some of the darkest days any of us will ever face. Days that come at the very end of our life, when one's health is faded, and there's not much else to look forward to. When death comes knocking at the door, and mere existence becomes so hard, and painful, and difficult, that it seems impossible to find any pleasure in it. Ecclesiastes continues to describe the aging process and how one's days are often dark at the end of life. He says in chapter 12, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Do you hear what he's talking? You see what he's talking about here? He's talking about aging. He's talking about the end of life. When your body is breaking down. He says the strong men are bent over. Their body is failing them. They are hunched over. The grinders cease because they are few. He's talking about teeth falling out. And you can't chew anymore. Or your eyesight fades. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. Getting old. Losing your health. Losing your life. It's a painful, difficult, dark thing. So he continues. Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken. He's talking about death here now. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. And dust returns to the earth as it was. This body returns to the grave. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. And if you live long enough, dark times like these will come. They will. And your health will fail you. And your life will seem utterly unbearable. And there are a few of you who are in those extremely dark days now. And in those dark times, you need faith in God's goodness. You need to know his grace to help you endure these days. You need to have a confident hope that these days are not the end because of a new life that you can have in Christ. And on behalf of the church leadership, our hug goes out to you. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you to persevere through the, these times of darkness. And we will. But only a few of you here are in those types of days now. Most of you, almost all of you are generally healthy. You're relatively young. And Ecclesiastes tells us that when the days are good in these ways, that we are to live them up. Don't squander them. Don't squander your opportunities for joy and happiness because you won't always have them. Life goes fast. And before you know it, you're going to be laying there on a hospital bed being poked and prodded with tubes and wires. Or you're going to wake up in the morning hardly able to get out of bed because of your grueling, arduous fight with cancer and chemotherapy. It's hard to find pleasure in days like that. And for some of us, those days are here right now. But for most of us, those days are yet coming. And they are coming quickly. 
So live life while you can. Don't squander your opportunities for real joy and pleasure in life. Now, you're probably still thinking one of two things at this point. You're thinking either, woohoo, this sounds great. Favorite message I've ever heard in church before. Live life for pleasure. Pursue pleasure. Or you're thinking, wait a minute, this could be problematic. And quite frankly, I hope you're thinking both. Because we should celebrate this truth and say, yes, I find the fact that God wants me to pursue enjoyment and pleasure in my days liberating. It sets my pleasure-seeking soul free from a guilty conscience. Which often says I need to go about life living in a rigid sort of asceticism, practicing an extreme type of self-denial and being a Christian party pooper at every turn. And have you ever thought we needed to live that way? And you thought that's what Jesus meant when he said, just take up your cross and follow me. And we need to deny ourselves any type of enjoyment or happiness in life whatsoever, that our life should be filled with constant drudgery and suffering. It's not what he means. It can't be the case. Ecclesiastes is presenting us with a different picture. And that following Christ and living for the life to come does not completely mean completely removing ourselves. From the pleasures in this life, the good things that God has given us to enjoy. So we don't all need to become monks and nuns. And lock ourselves up in some cold monastery up in a mountain. And relegate our lives to doing nothing but pious chants and eating bland stew. Or whatever you do in a monastery, I don't know. We ought to enjoy life. But we should be cautious and say applied wrongly, this theology could be very dangerous. There are limits to this pleasure, aren't there? I mean, surely there are all sorts of things that I'd see that my heart would want to do that I probably shouldn't go after. Isn't there? Uh, I mean, is this a license to go off and do whatever I want? After all, the text says in verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Yes, it does say that, but look what immediately follows. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. The writer knows that the pursuit of pleasure is good, but that it has clear moral limits. That as we strive to make the most of our days, we must have a conscious awareness that someday we will stand before God to give an account for our lives. And Ecclesiastes makes this point abundantly clear in the final two verses of the entire book. This is what he says, wrapping things up. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Your Ecclesiastes speaks about how one day each and every one of us will face God. And he will evaluate the quality of our lives. And he will reward or he will judge us accordingly. And throughout this book, Ecclesiastes, the author speaks of God's judgment. And notice here the extent of God's judgment. God will bring every deed into judgment. Every secret thing, whether good or evil. It involves everything we do. Whether in public or in private. Seen or unseen. Good or bad, nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing escapes his judgment. Someday all will stand before Christ and he will ask of them, did you, keep, did you live according to my commands? Did you live according to wisdom? And therefore we must do as this text says, fear God 
Keep his commands. Enjoy life, but do it according to righteousness. Pursue pleasure, but do it according to wisdom. Live in this pursuit of pleasure according to wisdom. That this pursuit of joy and pleasure must fall within these bounds. And hear me on this. This point is so important. Young people, hear me on this. If you don't hear this point, then you massively misunderstand this message and the content of this book. That the pursuit of pleasure must have clear moral limits. It must. Our pleasure-seeking hearts must be tempered by the hot furnace of God's holy moral character. Our satisfaction-seeking soul must be directed by the sharp moral edge of this word. Otherwise, the personal evaluation of our lives by Christ will not be good. So live wisely. And make wise choices. Be ready for God's judgment. Because you want to be rewarded. Not just in this life. But in the next. So what exactly does this mean? To pursue pleasure according to wisdom. I'd like to provide you with some practical examples of how to do this. How to live. How, how to use wisdom to maximize life's joy. Sound good? Who here wants some tips on how to maximize your joy? Here's six practical examples of wisdom to do that. All of which, most of which are taken directly from Ecclesiastes. And if you live by them, you will maximize your opportunity for joy. You know, so much of the lack of happiness in people's lives comes from a lack of wisdom. You realize that? It seems that so much of the pain and the hardship that the pastoral staff, we here at this church, help people through. Things that we hear as they sit in our office and they just vomit out to us all the painful and difficult circumstances of their life. They come directly because of unwise choices. Not always, but often. Sometimes you just want to smack them upside the head and say, Dummy, you brought this upon yourself. Because you didn't live wisely. Listen, there's, there's much pain in the life of a fool. But much happiness comes to one who is wise. Sometimes what that means is that you deny yourself earthly pleasures. Because wisdom says that you get greater pleasure if you deny the short-term pleasure. So sometimes you, you don't order that T-bone steak. Or you don't play that round of golf. Or you don't spend time on that hobby. Because wisdom dictates that in that moment, a different use of your time will yield you greater joy. Or a different way that you spend your money will lead you greater happiness in the long term. So sometimes you do that. Sometimes you deny yourself earthly pleasures to get you maximum joy. And by embracing wisdom, you will maximize your potential for joy, both in this life and the next. So six key ways, six key wise things. Do this and you will be happy and we will be a happy church. First is this, fear God. Fear God, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does a hundred, evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well. It will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Because he does not fear before God. Fear God. Fearing God means being wary of God's judgment. It's just what we've been talking about here. Don't pretend that this judgment is not coming. It is. Are you ready for it? 
But the reality that God will judge every thought, every action, every motive of your heart, whether seen or unseen, let that knowledge of that coming judgment create within you a healthy fear of that judgment. And when you do that, when you have that fear, the text says it will be well with you. It will go well with you. You will be experience happiness in life. Why? Because that wariness of God's judgment will motivate you to live by this next wisdom principle, which is this, be righteous. Be righteous. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. He's saying, hey, living wisely, there's more gain in that. There's more pleasure, more happiness in that than in folly. And a life lived in the light is a light that will get more than a life lived in the darkness. Therefore, live according to this book. Be righteous. Pursue pleasure, but always keep your moral compass in doing so. Make the most of your days, but in doing so, always flee the entrapment of sin. Because if you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Especially in this life. But you will also be depriving yourself joy in the next. Sin is painful. And it ultimately depletes our happiness. It has short-term gain, but long-term pain. It's been said that happiness is holiness. How very true. How very wise. So be righteous. Next point. Think rightly. Think rightly. Look at verse 10 in our text, chapter 11. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for the youth and dawn of life are vanity. Now, this is unusual language. Remove vexation from your heart. What is that? Vexation means being in a state of annoyance or irritation or grief. We're to remove those feelings from our heart. In other words, Ecclesiastes is saying to us, hey, hey, these good things in life, They're here, and they're gone. And that's pretty unfortunate. But you know, don't be annoyed by it. Don't be irritated or deeply grieved by it. Just accept it. Why? Because if you're overly annoyed by it, you'll never be able to enjoy life. You'll always be wallowing in misery. Wanting a type of experience that is impossible to have. And so you'll never experience the happiness you should have. Because you're so consumed with regretting the fleeting nature of this life. So just accept it. But instead, so often, when the things of this world vanish, like your money, or your health, or your relationship, or that position at work, or that opportunity for a vacation, or some material possession, we get annoyed, we get irritated, we get anxious, we grieve, and we experience vexation. Why? Because we value these things too much. We forget that they are transitory and fleeting. We buy into the lie that says these things will always be here for us. And then we begin to feel a sense of entitlement for them. And you know, we fail to realize that really, ultimately, they're not going to mean anything to us anyway. Not at all. Because this fleeting life, this transitory earthly existence, it is but a blink of an eye in the massive expanse of eternity. And if God has saved you and you have heaven to look forward to, then I believe that when you are there, you're hardly going to remember 
the fleeting things that vanish in your life right now. You're going to be like, that recession thing, I think I remember that. I think, I think there was something going on. And I think I might have lost, I don't know, some money. I, that was so long ago. I, I don't know. That's, that's ancient history now. Or, yeah, you know, I think I remember that. Yeah, there was that time I had that bad, I think I had a bad back. I think I did. That was so long ago, though, man. I, it was great. Now, I, whatever. And if you're in heaven and you do remember the hard things in life well, people are going to be like, dude, you are so new here. <laughs> dude, just give it time, Okay. Because the hard memories of fleeting things on this earth will be fleeting themselves in the new heaven and new earth. Praise God for that. So think rightly about your circumstances. And just accept the fact that easy come, easy go. That the things you value in this life so much. Or the things that you want in this life so much. They are here now, but soon they will be gone. And soon you won't care. You won't. You won't even hardly remember. So think rightly. About it. Next point. Devalue riches. Devalue riches. This is related to the previous point to think rightly. If we greatly value our riches, we are bound for disappointment. Because they will fade. They will. You don't need me to tell you that. Eventually, do you realize, eventually, every investment's going to be worth zero Every home value, every paycheck, every bank account, zero. The return of Christ, right? Your death to you, it's going to be worth zip. Do you realize that? So don't highly value your money. Hold on to your wealth with a loose and open hand. This includes your investment portfolio, your home values, your jobs, your retirement plans. And if it goes, be fine with it. Say, well... That was bound to happen anyway. Just happens sooner than later. Consider what these passages in Ecclesiastes say about riches. Chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Similarly, chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Ecclesiastes is saying the pursuit of money is chebel. It is an unhappy business. Therefore, if we think, if we greatly treasure our riches, we deprive ourselves of much joy. And you know, this is so ironic, isn't it? This is so ironic, but it makes so much sense. It's ironic because we look to riches for joy. But in doing so, when we look to our riches for joy, we actually deprive ourselves of the joy we're seeking. Because when our riches are gone, our joy goes with them. But if our joy is in something else, then the fleeting nature of life will have far less impact on the pleasure and satisfaction we experience. So don't let your happiness in life be enslaved and tied to your riches. There's only misery and suffering in that. Devalue your riches. Hold them with a loose and open hand. Next point. Treasure family. Treasure family. 
Many verses in Ecclesiastes speak to the value of our personal relationships. And here's one. Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. There are many other verses I could turn to that speak about valuing and treasuring all sorts of relationships in our lives. And the principle here in this verse and many others is simply this. Delight in your spouse. Love your kids. Value your parents. Enjoy your friends. Have fun with them. Because these people in life, they are so much more valuable than anything the world has to offer. Don't forsake them. Don't neglect them for these other fleeting things. Because these people can be such a great source of joy and satisfaction in life. Treasure them. The final point of wisdom is this. Invest in eternity. Invest in eternity. Despite the fact that everything in this world is fleeting and futile. Praise be to God. That there are things which are not this way. Things that are eternal. Things that will last. Things that will not be here one moment and gone the next. Things of God. Investing in these things is not futile. Investing in these things will never disappoint. In fact, investing in these things can be our greatest and ultimate source of joy. Jesus said it well when he said in Matthew 6 verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I would add, where your treasure is, there your joy and your happiness will be also. So what are these eternal treasures? It's not having the perfect garden or the brilliant golf game. Not having that perfectly tuned automobile or that completed home project. It's not achieving that degree, that promotion, that relationship. Wisdom says that you sometimes you denied yourself these pleasures to invest in eternity. Sometimes you have to do that. You can't do everything. Sometimes you got to deny yourself these fleeting pleasures to invest in pleasures that will last. And what are those pleasures? What are they? Things like this. Work done for Christ. Serving in the church. Contributing to his kingdom. Using your gifts, your opportunities, your time, your resources. To grow God's kingdom here on earth. Experiencing life in the body of the church. These things, they're done for Christ's sake. They last. Put your time and energy into that. Work done for Christ. Make it a priority. Because it will give you joy. Cultivation of holiness in our lives. As we reflect God's righteousness more and more in our life, God rewards that. He's pleased in that. He rewards us with that. And those rewards, they last. And that righteousness will bring you joy. Love for our neighbors. So we serve people in need, particularly those who don't know Christ. We display to them the enduring, never-ending nature of God's Love to a sick and dying world that is desperate to find something that will give them lasting happiness, eternal joy. So caring for those in hard times and showing them tenderly and authentically the love and joy that God has for them, that lasts. Finally, 
delighting in and knowing Christ himself. Who is himself our guarantee that the misery and the experience we have in this futile and fleeting life, it is not our ultimate destiny. That Christ is a secured for us an eternal joy, a joy that knows no end, a joy that will never fade, a happiness that no enemy can defeat, a treasure that death itself cannot snatch away from us. He himself is our joy and our unending, never changing, never fleeting, eternal treasure. So invest in knowing and delighting in him. And then the fleeting nature of this earthly existence will have no hold over your joy and your happiness. Because no matter when it is gone, you will still have Christ. And the most he is the most happy and delightful treasure that any of us can ever have. Amen. Just like everything else in life, our time here today is fleeting. So use wisdom to maximize your joy in life. Wisdom says invest in things that last. Invest in eternal things. Not in things of this world. In the things of Christ. Making the most of him, serving him. Living righteously for him. And treasuring above all Christ. Sure. Enjoy the things of this world while they're here. As you have opportunity, suck all the marrow out of life. Live it up. Enjoy it. Be free to do that. But don't set your heart on those things. Live according to wisdom. Because if your heart is ingrained in those things, then sadness will be your portion. But if your heart is on Christ, then you can have delight and joy and happiness evermore. Amen. Let's pray.